Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Today's going to be a different style of teaching, though. We're not going to be digging into the text itself so much as setting up some foundations for you to be able to do that as you engage with this book yourself. As fun as it truly would be to dig into it deeply, we may do that this fall, but you can take a breath. Your kids are safe because it's not for today. It's for next week, Chris. (laughs) Now, because of the nature and the historical perspective of this book, I think it would be more beneficial for me to clear some things up for you in preparation of understanding and really redeeming uh, this book from our, our understanding of the beauty of it and why we have it in our scriptures, why it's given to us as something that we ought to be paying attention to. So my goal is to help you understand how to interpret, how to read this book, because it truly is incredible. And we're going to dip our toes in the first chapter today, but we're not going to be digging into it much. Have you ever wondered and thought about what a love poem from ancient times would have sounded like? How the ancients used pickup lines? You know, the Song of Solomon is actually just that. It's this erotically poetic song all about love and passion and desire. I mean, we're talking steamy verses, romantic imagery, and a whole lot of passion between two completely smitten people. No twisted perversion, no no, uh, manipulation, just pure love. It's not selfish, it's just pure. My hope is that you are going to take what we learned today and go read for yourself and allow it to inspire you into something um, maybe greater, something that you haven't seen before. But before we can truly understand its purpose, we have to do two things. One is we have to move beyond the perversion that the world has manipulated romance and sexuality to be. Since the beginning of time, this has happened, and it's truly robbed humanity of millennia. For millennia. We have to move beyond the perversion. We have to move beyond the discomfort of sexual discussion and attraction within our Christian faith. That's just the reality of what we have to do if we're going to ever see the beauty of what God designed in this way. There's been tremendous damage done even within marriages by some of the purity movements that have swept across Christendom in our history. Books, Video series, conferences, even sermons have swept through young hearts and minds and created a skewed perspective of romance. Now, I need you to hear me that I'm in no way speaking against the sanctity, the privilege, and the pleasure that comes uh, within the confines of marriage. I need you to hear me on that. I'm no way speaking against saving yourself for marriage, and and having appropriate relationships. But we must not put all of those desires and all of that reality in the the category of perversion and say, well, the godly don't engage this, the godly don't appreciate it, the godly actually deny that and just focus on Jesus. And that sounds crazy to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll help you understand why I'm saying this. Out of fear of promoting licentious living, I think we've ignored the perfect design that God has gifted humanity regarding the fullness of intimacy and romantic relationships. We've thrown a blanket of shame and embarrassment over what God has designed to be good and pure and perfect. It's 
almost become taboo or forbidden to acknowledge in Christianity, yet just about every husband I know wishes it wasn't. And that's primarily why this book has tragically become nothing more than allegorical in many of its interpretations. The dominant view was and still is today that sexual passion and true spirituality are actually opposed to each other. The dominant view is that sexual passion and true spirituality are in opposition. But that's just not the case. This idea that the truly spiritual people repress sexuality in pursuit of Christ and that pursuit leads to a superior replacement of our sexual desires. But the reality is that I have specific desires for my wife that I'll never have for Jesus. And I have specific desires for Jesus that my wife will never get. Like, I desire to worship him. I desire to submit and surrender everything to him and know him fully in that way, in a complete worship. I'm never going to worship my wife. Oftentimes, though, it's uncomfortable for us to think that God loves the idea of erotic attraction and pleasure even when attained in marriages. So we put it in a category of shame. But you know what? A lot of scripture is uncomfortable. And the faithful approach to teaching and interpreting scripture is to allow the text to lead and inform our understanding and thinking, not vice versa. We allow the text to inform us, not our discomfort to inform the text. If you're a student in our, in our uh, COTR SOMA classes, maybe you've heard the words exegesis and eisegesis. Sounds fancy, they're not. Really, exegesis is, is understanding what the authors meant to say by analyzing the text. So we pull from the text, we pull what is from there. Eisegesis is when, we, when readers come to the text with an agenda instead of focusing on what it actually says. So you inject into the text. We want to be good at exegesis. We want to be good at pulling out what God has determined to be truth, not putting in what we are comfortable with, understanding. And it's vital to our faith and theology to be faithful in the area of exegesis because our theology actually informs our faith and it informs our life. And there's three primary ways that people historically have handled the Song of Solomon. One is they avoid the book altogether. This is primarily out of discomfort. I mean, how many sermons have you heard on the Song of Solomon? Case in point. Two, they see it primarily as an allegory describing the love relationship between God and his people, but not between a husband and a wife. Again, this is probably mostly out of discomfort. In fact, the early Jewish rabbis thought that the book describes God's love for Israel. Early Christian writers took the same approach, but they replaced Israel with the church. But throughout the book, you won't find a single religious word, not even mention of prayer or worship. You won't find direct mentions of God in terms of adoration or piety. The focus of the song is primarily on erotic and romantic love. And it shouldn't be forced into something that it's not. It shouldn't be forced into allegorical interpretation because the book never claims to be allegorical. Some verses like Galatians 4.24, Paul states like, hey, what I'm saying right now, you can interpret allegorically. Like, the, the scripture's not hidden to us. So that's why it's important for us to pull from what is there, not put in what we desire. And it's easy to do. It is easy to do, especially when we have lenses and cultural pressures and all that stuff. And so the song of Solomon has been victim to this. 
but it presents itself as a literal account of the perfect and pure love between a man and a woman. And thirdly, as they see the book primarily as a poetic drama dealing with three characters, Solomon, a shepherd, and a young woman. And the book is full of, of symbolism and, and metaphors. It's certainly not just a drama of three characters, though. But I believe the most faithful way to understand this book is as a literal, powerfully poetic song describing the passionate and erotic love between a man and a woman. A song about both their pursuit of each other leading up to and into their marriage. Now, it doesn't give us a smooth chronological story, though. It's a collection of snapshots of their dating and their married life with pictures not necessarily in order. And let me be clear to those of you who might have grown up with this interpretation of it being allegorical. Because God deliberately uses marriage relationship as an illustration of the relationship he has with his people, we find that this, this amazing song illustrates the love the intensity, and the beauty of the relationship that should exist between God and the believer, between Jesus and his church. It illustrates it. And then all throughout scripture in the New Testament, we are, we are told that we are the, the bride of Christ. But it's not what the, the Song of Solomon was written for. We can understand it and, and, and use it as an illustrative piece, but we need to understand there's a human element to this that God has gifted us with. It focuses on romance and marital love, and it shows us the value that God actually has for the beauty and the institution of marriage. Before the fall, he commanded the first smitten couple to become one flesh. That physical love within the marital union is a good thing. It's a God thing. His will and it's his will that we should engage and enjoy in this. It should be, bring enjoyment to both people. For many people, the Song of Solomon is the mystery book of the Bible. In fact, Tommy Nelson, in his book uh, called The Book of Romance on, on the Song of Solomon, he says this, he says, Tucked among the books of the Bible, in the section called the Wisdom Literature, the Song of Solomon has the distinction of being the only book of the Bible that seems to have been edited and censored by the Christian church. Most Christians don't read it, don't understand it, and have never heard a sermon from it. Yet, no message could be more needed today. The Song of Solomon is the book for this generation, in my opinion. And we look at the, at the twisted nature of relationships, at the, the confusion that exists within our, the culture that we see that, that has been in rising and has been in existence for thousands of years. Unfortunately, we live in a world full of sin, and that sin has led to a misunderstanding and a skewed perspective of, of pursuit and marriage and sex. We see the hookup culture that exists today and immediately, immediately associate the sin of promiscuity and immorality with sex itself. And we say, well, it's all bad. It's all bad. So we're just not going to talk about it. It's all, it's all in conjunction with, with one another. So if we understand God's perfect design, then we have to look beyond the world's perspective and redeem what Satan has stolen from humanity, what's been perverted. It's not a despicable infatuation of a perverted nature, as many religious people tend to see it. It's a love that's pure and real and perfectly suited for humanity to enjoy in obedience to God and honor towards one another. 
just as two people who genuinely love each other, will use every possible beautiful word and phrase to describe the other. This is the language of the Song of Solomon. It's the language of passion and love. So let's dig in a bit. Now, I'm going to be reading out of the message today um, because it's more of a paraphrase than a translation and a good resource, especially in narrative and wisdom literature. It can be a a fun um, alternative or substitute, I should say. I would never, however, recommend that you read uh, a narrative before reading a good translation. I personally prefer translations like the NET, NLT, or ESV is what I use most commonly. In fact, ESV Study Bible is one of my favorites. But don't study from paraphrase. But it's fun when you're reading through the wisdom literature. And if we want to grow in our experience of God, we have to grow in our knowledge of him. We remember that the Bible not only describes who God is and what God does, but it also tells us what God wants for humanity, what he wants for our marriage, what he wants for our parenting, what he wants for, for intimacy and the desires that we got to figure out. Why, why male and female and husband and wife have never been able to be in alignment on some of these major pieces. This is not God's design. Your marriage, the struggle in your marriages are not God's design for your marriage. But it's the world and the reality that we live in. And this is key to understand in this book that, that it is God giving us a gift to express his desire for love and for humanity. So let's read beginning in verse 1. The song, the best of songs, Solomon's song. I asked my wife to read this today and she's like, that would be weird. <laughs> so I'm going to read with the best her voice that I can. <clears throat> Kiss me full on the mouth. Yes, for your love is better than wine. Headier than your aromatic oils, the syllables of your name murmur like a meadow brook. No wonder why everyone loves to say your name. Take me away with you. Let's run off together. An elopement with my king lover. We'll celebrate. We'll sing. We'll make great music. Yes, for your love is better than vintage wine. Everyone loves you, of course. And why not? I am weathered but still elegant. Oh, dear sisters in Jerusalem. Weathered, darkened like the Kadar desert tents. Time softened like Solomon's temple hangings. Don't look down on me because I'm dark, darkened by the sun's harsh rays. My brothers ridiculed me and sent me to work in the fields. They made me care for the, uh, for the face of the earth, but I had no time to care for my own face. Tell me where, where, where you were working. I love you so much. Tell me where you were tending your flocks, where you let them rest at noontime. Why should I be the one left out outside the orbit of your tender care? This woman's infatuated. She's seeking out. She's thinking. She's obsessing over this love of hers. And he responds in verse 8, if you can't find me loveliest of all women, it's okay. It's all right. Stay with your flocks, lead your lambs to good pasture. Stay with your shepherd neighbors. You remind me of Pharaoh's well-groomed and and satiny mares. Pendant earrings line the elegance of your cheeks. Stranded, the strands of jewels illume the curve of your throat. I'm making jewelry for you, gold and silver jewelry that will mark the accent, uh, mark and accent your beauty. Can you hear and feel the anticipation? the romance, almost this Hallmark-like movie. 
beginning to play itself out and you think that would, you know, I, I remember having those if I could have articulated these types of words. For my wife, when I was first noticing and, and, and seeing her beauty and getting to know her and, and, and her getting to know me and there's this, there's this love, we call it the honeymoon phase where you're just infatuated. And our culture says, well, the honeymoon phase is wear off. Just give it, give it a little bit of time. I remember when I was first engaged to my wife and I was telling people, and my response was not, that is incredible, man. You're going to love this. My response, the response was, good luck with that, man. Good luck. Good luck, man. Married, tied down, huh? All this negative approach to what God has actually deemed to be very good. Now, let me be clear. Relationships are not easy. They are perhaps the most difficult thing we have to do in life. But they aren't meant to be defeated. They're meant to live with passion and love in the way that God has designed. You can hear this pursuit of love. Now, this little section is just meant to be a teaser for us this morning, so be sure to read the rest later. Um, and and even, even the message um, really PGs the, the rated R language used in, in this book. It, it, it is... It is erotic. There's no way around it. There's no way around, and we have, to, we have to understand that it is not a book of pornography, but it is a book of, of very clear description of sexual pure, pure sexual love and attraction and, and romance. You see, all throughout Scripture, we're given an example of how God created man and woman, woman to live in happiness. He created us as sexual beings designed to hunger for relationships. He made male and female distinct and different biologically, psychologically. Now, God created us spiritually identical. We're all one in Christ, but God ordained marriage from the beginning of creation, as Genesis tells us, that the two would become one flesh. Process of two becoming one flesh is not the marriage ceremony, but it begins when a man and a woman become one through intimate engagement, sexual engagement. So when the process of two becoming one begins, the entire marriage is the process of two becoming one every day. Practice makes perfect, not just sexually. This is why sex outside of marriage is, is devastating, it's sinful, it's destructive. It destroys the oneness of the couple, of the married couple. This is also why Paul gives instruction and in not withholding from each other within a marriage. We can't ignore the, the sexual content of this book because it actually proves that sex is in a marriage relationship is a good thing, not a nasty or perverted thing that we have to do to have kids. So, a little introduction into the book as you think about whether you're still evaluating if you're going to read it or you're going to have your kids read it or whatever, whatever you choose to do in your home. <laughs> Most scholars uh, historically attribute the authorship to Solomon, um, and I think there's a very good evidence for that. However, I'll admit, it's hard to imagine that the world's biggest womanizer writes a book and a song on this love. But we also look at other authors of Scripture and go, okay, well, they didn't necessarily have it all together. Either way, Solomon in all of his wisdom wouldn't have been the first or the last wise man to live as a, as a fool when it comes to romance and sexuality. Saying the Song of Solomon is purely, purely allegorical, it does miss the mark. We have to start by accepting and appreciating this love song as a profound expression of human affection. This is how we need to understand it first. 
It is a profound expression of human affection. I would beg to argue that it is actually the expression and the desires of your heart at one point in your relationship. That there was something in you that maybe you can articulate it well, but when you looked and locked eyes on the one for the first time, maybe you're like me, you had friends and, and, and female friends and friends of the opposite sex, and then boom, one day there was just the one friend who was like, nope, this is more, this is more. And you start, you start thinking through what is happening in my heart right now. What is, what is going on, man? I, 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 I'm, I'm loving this person. Oh my goodness. And there, there's beautiful things about it. You start dreaming and start pursuing and start imagining. I still remember the day I told my wife that I loved her. And it was amazing. It was nerve wracking. It was exciting. It was, it, we were doing everything we could to call and to, to see how we can make plans to get together and all those things. It was, it was fun. And, and this book is how we need to understand this First, then we can see how it hints at the deep connection between Christ and his church. But we must not ignore the human element to this. As you'll see when you read it for yourself, there's a commitment and a loyalty in this relationship. But there's also a deep desire and passion of pursuit. And any relationship, actually, even outside the faith, can survive with these three elements. You can be you can be a, a person outside of the Christian faith and, and have, have commitment. You can have loyalty. You can have desire and passion. But I believe that only those whose commitment, loyalty, and desire is also in Christ can experience the joy of sacrificial and selfless love. A love that surpasses commitment and loyalty. In fact, in John 13, 34, Jesus gives us a new commandment. This is out of the ESV. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So how does Jesus love us? Sacrificially, passionately, in pursuit of us. He calls us his beloved. When you hear those words, Paul, would, Paul uses these words in his letters to the church. That there's a deep affection a sacrificial affection that goes beyond just elements of friendship, that goes beyond elements of commitment, that there is a desire, a beloved is a sacred, beautiful word, and where it's used even in, in the Song of Solomon, and Jesus uses it, we are his beloved bride. When we understand the human element of this book, we get to see and, and, and have a little bit of the glimpse of Jesus' emotional and desired affection towards us, his church. And I think that's one of the biggest things we struggle with is it, as his church is understanding how much he actually loves us, how much he's in pursuit of us despite our imperfections. Just like, the, just like the, the female in this is like, I know I have blemishes, I'm, my skin's tan, and us in Alaska, we're like, we'd like some sun. Can we get a little bit of that sun? But she's seeing, she's recognizing like, man, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm lovely because this man loves me and he's, he's attracted to me. And when we, when we bring this into our faith with Jesus, we say, yeah, Jesus, I'm, I'm definitely, I have some blemishes, but you love me? In fact, we're told that we love him because he first loved us. We are his beloved. And so for the singles here today, spiritually or relationally, meaning if you are not surrendered to Jesus, you are spiritually single. 
If you are not married, then you are relationally single in that capacity. I want you to listen to this. Luke 14, 28 through 30 says this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. We don't rush in to our faith. We don't rush in to relationships. We count the cost. This means that we evaluate. We spend time in the process, become familiar with, and learn what's needed, what's required, what's desired. Discover who they are, what they're like, their philosophy of life, their, the things they value, what brings them joy, what's their life mission. And I mean this in a relationship physically and in our faith. Count the cost. There's a cost. And I think too often we rush into this saying, sweet, there's a guy named Jesus who's going to give me what I want. Awesome. Oh, there's this girl who's going to give me what I want. Awesome. And we don't think about the cost of, of self-denial. In both of those. We don't think about the cost. My wife says something so, she's just, she's super wise. I have discernment, she has wisdom. And I'll tell you, when you get to know her, you'll see. She is, she's just a woman of wisdom. And she, she said, Josh, when we got married, there's an element that we learned to die to ourselves with our schedules, with our little tendencies. And then we had our first, and she's like, man, we had to die to ourselves." And you don't feel like you can die anymore on those, on those midnights when you're trying to figure out if you can even make it to another night. And then you have another kid, and you got to die to yourself more, and you're like, man, is it possible to die more than I'm already dead? And then you have another one and another one. And she said, having kids and, and being involved in people's life in a relationship, it's just God gifting us the ability to learn to die to ourselves that we would only find more life in him. So we don't rush in to relationships. We don't rush in to our faith. We count the cost. Spend time becoming acquainted before you move into commitment. Let your pursuit build anticipation and affection. And be sure to have fitting expectations. Otherwise, you will let the guard of your heart down. For those here this morning that are married or committed to Jesus already, I would, I would, uh, I would challenge you to return to your first love to pursue with passionate desire as you did in the days of old. If you're here this morning and your love for your spouse has diminished or your love for the Lord has faded and wandered, remember the days of your youth. Remember the gospel. Remember your blemishes and, and, a, and a person that loved you despite your blemishes. The passion that fueled your pursuit. I'm not unaware of the difficulty of staying engaged in relationships. It's extremely difficult. It takes humility. It takes sacrifice. It takes intentionality. I'm still learning how to do this better in both my relationship with my wife and with Jesus and with my kids and with everyone, actually, to be honest. But it's a pursuit that we're on. We don't stop because it gets difficult or because we've experienced unmet expectations that create hurt. But how do we return? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to stop medicating with busyness and distractions and consider the desire and the passion of your youth, that you had a desire for your spouse at one point, 
in your faith. You had a desire to know Jesus, and, and there was an infatuation. There was a, a pursuit, this gospel that just didn't even make sense, but it was so real to you. And over time, you just kind of, I, I get it. I get it. You just, you grow kind of cold to it. Your, your wife or your husband start annoying you now, and the things that you used to find cute are no longer cute anymore. Jesus has let you down. The expectations you had of coming to him and being able to pray to this God who's going to give you what you think you need, and he's not doing it, all of a sudden there's a lot of unmet expectations going, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I don't know about this. So you stay married unhappily. You stay coming to church unhappily. You stay saying the words unhappily, but your heart is actually far from those things. And I would just encourage you to return to that first love. I rode up to the men's summit with a guy who just got saved last summer, and this dude is just on fire still. I mean, fire in the eyes, like he, all he can talk about the whole way was just Jesus this, Jesus that. And I'm like, man, it just stirred a desire like, man, those are sweet, sweet things to hear from people. They're sweet. It's igniting. It, it's, it's impassioning me again to return to that excitement I had in Jesus. This, this guy doesn't have to try to evangelize. It's not a task on his Christian list. In the same way, complimenting my wife is not a task I have to do unless I've lost the pursuit of her, the appreciation of her. Then it becomes a chore. So we return to our first love. We as a church are called to spur one another on in love and good works as Christ perfects his love in us. Practice makes perfect. In dating, in loving, in flirting, in marriage, in friendships, even in the bedroom. Proverbs 31 wife, we all know it, right guys? We study that a lot. <laughs> I'm going to read you a list that's mentioned in the Proverbs 31 woman. She does good and not harm, works with willing hands, brings food from afar. She's resourceful. She's strong. She's generous. She creates revenue. She teaches her kids and is wise. She's kind, dignified, not lazy. Her children look up to her. She fears the Lord and is to be praised. That's a pretty amazing description, right? Something we say, man, that would be an amazing spouse to have. There's something attractive and even kind of sexy about that description. It sounds good. It sounds like it ought to be. And we say, well, there's, there's your description. I'm going to continue being the guy that I'm going to try to be. But actually, we miss. There's something in here for us. In, in verse 23, chapter 31, it said, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. This is a husband who's not lazy, who's respectable, protective, He's of good reputation. He's wise. A man who has devoted himself to learning from those that come before him. A man who is faithful, who sacrifices. He invests in the needs of others. A man who provides maidens to help his wife, which means he's, he has to be successful. In fact, we were created to be this type of man, and it's actually a desire we actually want. I think oftentimes we just don't know how to be that. If we're ever going to become that, we have to surround ourselves with men like that. We must study the men who already sit at the city gates in our lives. 
If we're ever going to become that, we have to surround ourselves and learn from those who have walked through life. We must study the men. Our first dance in our wedding, um, I, I, uh, it was, uh, the song is called Making Memories of You. And there's a, lyric, there's a lyric in there that says, I want to be a man among men. And so that was our first dance at our wedding. And I loved that desire. That's been the desire of my heart. Like, man, I want, I want my wife to never wish that she had another man. I want to be the man who meets her dreams, who meets her expectations. But I knew that I needed help if I was ever going to be that for my wife. And it's been a hard road and still is. But it's also been the greatest honor of my life, that pursuit of always chasing after and winning my wife's heart over and over and over again. It's God's pursuit of us, winning our hearts over and over and over again. And I have some real brothers in my life who would make David's mighty men look like a joke, who have challenged me, who have called me out, who have encouraged me, who have taught me, we need to swallow our pride and find that band of brothers in our lives. And ladies, the same goes for you. You have to surround yourself with others who will teach you, who will encourage you, support you. Those times that you're at home with all the kids and you're going, man, I'd like to have a job. I'd like to be doing something else right now. What is my value other than this repetitive changing of diapers and feeding and cleaning up only to clean up more and, and all this kind of stuff? Like, oh, man, that pressure's real and it's hard and I would never desire to have that job. I really feel like if there's ever anyone qualified for any job, it's a stay-at-home mom because they know how to problem solve and they know how to get stuff done. But it's also wearisome. We compare ourselves with others and go, how does this mom do this and have kids? How does this guy do this and have that? And all these things, we end up in this comparison game. And we have to surround ourselves with people who can teach us and become the people. Become the woman you were created to be so that you can be the wife you committed to being. And guys, the same for us. If we're ever have healthy, passionate, and happy marriages, we have to stop playing the comparison game. Stop putting off till tomorrow what can be done today. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and either you or your spouse or even uh, um, Jesus himself hasn't been what you expected. You feel let down at the idea of passionate pursuit. That candle's dead. Seems useless and hopeless. I'm not putting myself out there for my spouse anymore. I'm not putting myself out there for Jesus anymore. I'll just do the bare minimum. I'm telling you, it never stays in neutral. It will only become more deadening, more chaotic, and worse. You no longer anticipate good to come from your spouse or your faith. If you're thinking, man, Josh, you don't know my spouse. They've lied. They've cheated. They've put me second. They've complained to me. They've complained about me. doesn't matter. Why? Well, if we're honest, we've done the same thing to them too. But I think more importantly, because how many times have we lied, cheated, found pleasure in other things, and complained about God? And what has his response been back to us? Abandonment? Neglectfulness? No. Actually, in fact, he seeks after your heart even harder even more, and he continues to come back. I think one of the hardest things for me to accept in my life is the reality that the pursuit that I read about in the Song of Solomon is never waning when it comes to Jesus' pursuit of me. 
despite my pursuit of him. That he remains faithful when we are faithless. So if this is you this morning, I strongly encourage you to take a step back and remember the days of your youth, falling in love. Just reflect on it. Whether in your dating, whether you're dating, your honeymoon era, or in your early years in faith. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to rekindle that fire within you. It is not something you can muster up. It is something the Holy Spirit has to come in and ignite and fan into flame. Why? Because it's good for you. It's good for your family. And it's God's design. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. So here's some next steps for reading the book of Solomon. Read it for what it is. You're going to stop and you're going to wonder, I wonder what that actually means. Or why did they compare that? It's okay. Just stop. Enjoy it. It's a poetic book of, an, of incredible depth. Don't over-spiritualize it. Read it for what it is and ask God to help you, help your, in your relationship or your marriage to be the fullness of his design. And then, and only then, go back and reread it with the lens of Christ and his bride and be even more astonished. He is passionately pursuing you. He's passionately pursuing me. By his design, our marriages are meant to reflect the pursuit of God towards us. The gift of God-defined love and passion has the power to bring hope back into the hopeless relationships. And there is no pain on earth like heart pain. So we cultivate anticipation and passion in your relationship, both earthly and spiritual, as you pursue God's design for that perfect love and intimacy. Whether it be in your marriage or in your faith, practice makes perfect. But it demands forgiveness demands grace. It demands pursuit. It demands humility. There is no shortcut to this. This is the danger with pornography and all the other ways that, 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 that sexuality and passion has been robbed from humanity. It's because there's a quick fix to everything. We want the quick fix to it. We don't have to want to have to do the hard work of heart work. We want the quick fix to these things. But it's never meant to be that. There's something beautiful in the difficult pursuit. There's something beautiful in, in us guys being cheesy. I still use cheesy pickup lines on my wife. Why? Because it works? No. Because she thinks it's funny. And I save those things for special times that I can load up with a, a genuine compliment right behind it. It's fun. Relationships are meant to be fun. You're, wherever you're at in your relationship, wherever you're going to be, if you're young and married, man, I, I met um, my wife and I in our first year of marriage. We worked with Thelma and Leroy. They were in their 70s and 80s at the time. He was 80, she was 78. And these were the couple, I'm telling you, man, he was, he was a short guy, she was a little bit taller, and they held hands everywhere they went. They flirted all the time. We worked at this camp with them. They were the sweetest most endearing couple I remember to this day so vividly, I want that when I'm old. Because you see a lot of couples who are half their age that don't even want to be together anymore. I hear from people my own age at that time, good luck. 
have fun with that. And I'm like, no. I want what these people have. They, they were married for 70 or 60 years or whatever. I can't even remember at this point. The only spouse they've ever known. The only people they've ever, ever intimately been with. And I'm thinking like, man, that's beautiful. And you know what he says to me? He says, Josh, you guys are an awesome couple. But you will not know how to love your wife until 10 years of being married. And I'm like, all right, Leroy, old school. And he was right. I didn't know the joy of sacrificial love. I'm still learning it. But I didn't even contemplate it until we were married for quite a while. And we had to work through some of those unmet expectations. So I just encourage you, wherever your relationship's at, whether it be with another person in this room or a person afar, children, don't give up. Whether it be in your faith, and your faith is waning and you're barely hanging on, don't give up. Stop medicating. Go back and just rely and pray and ask God to help. Return to that first love. Would you guys stand Father, you are a God of miracles. You are a God of design. You are a God of creativity, Lord. You are a God of poetry. Lord, I think of you saying that we are your poem, that we are your masterpiece. You've created us beautifully, Lord. So God, I ask, Father, today, Lord, that you would stir into us something deep, something permanent. Lord, you would dissatisfy us with where our relationships have been, the hopelessness that we've lived with, God, and you would give us a better perspective, Lord, a pure perspective of what you have created to be beautiful and pure, Lord. We ask this for the good of your people, Lord, and the glory of your mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.